It's a, uh, been a rainy week. Beautiful Sunday morning, though. It's appropriate, isn't it? Rainy week. Sometimes the weeks are tough, but Sundays are always sunny, even if the sky doesn't say so. It just so happens to say so today. It's awesome. If you would, just open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. If you're uh, visiting with us today, we are going through the book of Luke. Uh, not so slowly, but not so quickly either, but we're moving right along through it, and uh, we are in the uh, chapter of 9, where we're looking at verses 23 through 27. Uh, we've been going through that last week, and we're finishing it up this week. And so while you're turning there, while you're finding uh, your place in Luke 9, I just, if I can just say, just before we get started, I just want to speak to the value of Wednesday nights. It's been mentioned a couple times already. I just want to speak to the value of Wednesday nights and just how, at least how valuable to me uh, they are. Uh, if you don't know, we as a body, we get together on Wednesday nights, and what we do is we discuss uh, God's Word, namely the sermon. We fellowship with one another. Uh, we come together, and we really discuss uh, God's Word, and like I said, mainly the sermon. And if you weren't able to make the family meeting a few weeks ago, uh, the elders had said how important they are kind of raising Wednesday night too. That they're, they're hopeful that if you can make it, that Wednesday night will be a priority uh, for you to come. And I got to tell you, for me, more is drawn out of Wednesday night from the text that could ever be drawn out of a 45 to 55 minute sermon just sitting here. And the reason is because when you're, when you're Preaching from a text, there's a lot of little nuances out of the text. And just for the sake of time, you don't have time to draw out. Guess what's discussed on Wednesday nights? It's those little nuances of the text. It's, the, it's some of the, what, what does he mean by that, that I don't have time to explain, that we discuss on Wednesday nights. And I, I get so much out of that that it, it feeds my heart and soul at a great point in the week when I need it the most. It carries me through the rest of the week. And so... My encouragement to you is this, is that uh, if you're not coming on Wednesday nights and you have no good reason not to, come. Come. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome time and get into the Word with your fellow body. Study God's Word together. We have so many differences among us, but we have one common connection, and that is Christ and His Word. We can come together and study Him together and find our connection there, and we can let God's Word go further and deeper into our hearts to carry us out the rest of the week. All right, that's it on Wednesday. So if you can come, come. Okay, now, if you remember from last week, uh, we began like our two-part series, if you will, on this particular verse, which, or this particular section of Scripture, and what we were talking about with it is that it was the call of discipleship. The call of discipleship, or the call to follow Jesus. This call, if you remember, is a, is a call to be a Christian. Again, not a higher level Christian, not a super Christian, not an extreme Christian, but rather, this is the call of anyone who would desire to have Jesus as their Savior. That's each of us, I would assume. This is the call to faith. In these few verses, we get a, a very good, deep look at what it means to have faith or what faith looks like. Namely, as this verse tells us, faith looks like this. To deny ourselves, or as we remember, to disown ourselves or to forsake, forsake our own identities, our own rights, our own missions, our own dreams, and pick up our cross daily 
And every morning we identify with Christ and who he is and what he's done for us and our mission alongside him. There's a daily mental and heart task of faith. It's the fight of faith every day. This is the opposite of what the world tells us, isn't it? This isn't what we hear in TV commercials and on Disney Channel and on the radio. This is not what we hear in the world. Instead, what we hear in the world is that to be happy, to have true life, right? To have true life is to love yourself. Love yourself. Believe in yourself. Trust yourself. Trust your heart. Have self-confidence. Be self-assured. And then go and create dreams for yourself. And then go and get those dreams and don't let anyone get in your way. And if anyone does get in your way, well, guess what? They're not your friend because if they were, they would be all about you too. That's what the world says. Jesus says, don't love yourself. He says, deny yourself. He says to deny yourself. Don't trust or believe in yourself. He says, trust in me. Believe in me. Don't have self-confidence, have Christ-confidence. Don't have self-confidence, have God-confidence. Don't live for you, he says. Die and be raised up and live for me. That's what this text is about. It's the call of discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian. And if you remember, the main point of last week, and it's still the same main point this week, is that the call of discipleship, the call to be a Christian, the call to follow Jesus is costly. The summons from Jesus to you is a costly summons. But Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And today we continue in our text, looking at verses 24 through 27. And if you... So if you will, as before we read the text, just pray with me. Pray with me again that God would take this text and make it so central. This is such a central text. Just studying this text for the sake of preaching has made a massive impact on me. And I pray that it won't fade away. I pray that it will do the same for you. So pray for that this morning. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of praise and honor. You're worthy of all glory. And Lord, you reign and you sit on your throne. And so, Lord, we come to you as the king to worship this morning, to worship in song to worship in spirit, to worship in truth, as by your grace, truth is preached today. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit would speak, that your word, your scriptures would speak, and that our hearts would be soft and ready to receive it and bear fruit. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Don't let us leave here today, God, unchanged. Jesus' name. Okay. Beginning in verse 23, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. 
For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Praise God for his word. What would we, where would we be without texts like this? Where would we be without his word? So as we read the text, what we should see are four incentives. Four incentives or four motivations kind of interwoven together. And what they're designed to do is to help us see what is on the other side of self-denial. To help us see what is on the other side of daily cross-carrying. And Jesus often works this way. Jesus often speaks this way, meaning that he often gives commands that are followed up by a reward. They're often followed by reward. Rarely, if ever, does Jesus just give a command and just say, because I said so. Because I told you to do it. Just do it. He doesn't work that way because we're not made that way. And he's the one that made us. So he knows how we're wired. Rather, he made us to do things and respond to commands out of desires, out of affections, out of of our heart, out of things that we want to do, because that is exactly the way we operate. We always do things out of desires and wants, not out of obligation, not joyfully anyways. As we've discussed before, no one does anything unless there is an underlying motivation to it. No one does anything unless there is an underlying motivation to it. Everything we do, hear me, everything we do is driven by motive. Everything. Just to give you an example, no one, and I mean no one, has ever sinned out of duty. No one has ever committed any sin out of obligation. We don't, we don't wake up some days and just have a checklist of sins that we feel like we have to complete today. They just happen. They happen out of the desires of our heart. They happen out of a a hope, a hope that we believe we will get if we do that. There's a promise connected to every sin that we believe in that will bring us satisfaction, will bring us joy, will bring us completion, and it always utterly fails. And so Jesus, he knows how we're wired, and he knows that desires aren't bad. They're just misaligned. They're misdirected. He's redirecting our desires towards true life. So he rarely, if ever, gives a command without motivation. Let's just look at a few. Some of these are on the back of the handout if you have one. Luke 6.35. He says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. That's the command. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. He attaches a reward to that. And he says, and you will be children of the Most High. Okay, Matthew 5, 12. He, said, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. And it's great. There's so much more. I had to delete some for sake of time. There's so many more verses where Jesus is giving a command attached with a reward on the end. 
But what you'll notice is that each of these commands, each of these commands to rejoice in persecution, love your enemies, or serve the body of Christ are all followed by a promise. A promise of reward. And this call right here in this text is absolutely no different. It's no different. The, the call to deny yourself, the call to take up your cross daily, the call to follow him, it's wonderful. We'll see from this text. It is followed by the word for three times. Not number four. <laughs> it's followed by the word for three times. And then but, which I believe is a final encouragement. Okay? The word for could also be translated as cause or because. So when you read the text, you could see it kind of play out this way. You say, take up your cross and follow me because, because, because. So the question becomes, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone deny themselves? Why would anyone kill their own dreams? Why would anyone put to death their own desires and commit their life to Jesus? Why would anyone want to let go of their life and all the pleasures that this world and money and comfort and treasures of this world offer? Why would we be, anyone be willing to do that? Why? Because he offers something much, much greater. He offers something greater in this life and the next, like like life, like true life, life with him forever. Or another way of putting it, salvation. This is all about salvation. This is all about salvation. This is not higher level Christianity. This is not get saved and then find a way to live like this. This is Christianity. This is all about salvation, life, true life with him now and forever. This is how it's done. This is how we get there. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus' first argument for self-denial. Why should you pick up your cross? Because whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So, sub point one. First point for today is the way to life, true life, is through death. The way to true life is through death. Jesus' first argument, or his first incentive is life itself. Life itself. It's true life. True life. And the way to true life is by losing it. The way up, the way up is down. The way to win is to lose. It is life's ultimate paradox. It is life's ultimate paradox. And the first half of this paradox says, save your life equals lose your life. Or, another way of putting it is, save your earthly life and lose your eternal life. Save your earthly life and lose your eternal life. And so the first part of this motivation for self-denial and the first part of the motivation for cross-bearing is, don't lose your life. Don't lose your life by trying to save it. By trying to hold on to it with this white-knuckle grip to all the things we think we have to have in this world. Don't lose your life by holding on to all these things the world says we have to have. We don't have them. They're not ours. We're not that person anymore. What does it look like, though? 
might be wondering, what does it look like to save your earthly life? If we don't want to do that, then let's, let's ask that question. What, is, what would it look like to save my earthly life? Well, as we discussed last week, the idea of picking up your cross. When Jesus said this, when he said, pick up your cross, this phrase, to the disciples and anyone listening, this was not a pretty picture. Again, this was not a, they didn't picture a gold chain around your neck. They didn't picture like a picture of grace and love and mercy. Like we might see it on this side of the cross. What they saw was an excruciating, torturous, shameful, absolutely going to end in death instrument. It was shameful. You were stripped down, beaten, naked, pierced, legs broken, hanging on a cross for days. There was nothing beautiful about it. So when they heard that, Jesus basically was telling them, you need to be willing to embrace opposition. You need to be willing to embrace shame. You need to be willing to embrace suffering and even death, should I so ask it. And so from this, we can see that saving your life looks like, well, looks like the opposite of this. It looks like the opposite of this, meaning that saving your life looks like living in such a way that avoids opposition. It avoids opposition. It avoids shame. I don't want to be shamed by the world. I don't want to be shamed by my neighbors. It avoids suffering. And it may even avoid death. Or to put it in the active, it means I'm going, to, I'm going to live a life that pursues the praise of man, personal glory, comfort, and safety. I'm going to be all about praise of man, personal glory, self-exaltation, and don't forget, we have to be safe. We have to be safe. That is how you save your earthly life. That is how you save it. When you, when you do this, when you protect yourself when you protect yourself at all cost, your old self, your old dreams, everything you want in this world at all cost, that's exactly what you're doing because it will cost you everything, Jesus says. It will cost you everything. A lot in the church today has been lost for the mission of the gospel for the sake of prudence, for the sake of safety. For the sake of not going into dangerous places, because that wouldn't be wise. But people need Christ. People need Christ, even at our own expense. People need Christ, like the man Joseph from the story I said last week. This village needed Christ. So Jesus is not calling us to be safe. He's not calling us to be safe. He is calling us to take risks. He's calling us to take risks with our lives. Be willing, be willing, hear me, be willing to lose this life. Take risks with your money. It's not yours, it's his. Take a risk with your money. Take a risk with your job. He'll get you a new one. Or maybe he won't, but it's worth the loss no matter what. Take a risk with your house, with your friendships, with your neighbors. Take a risk with your family. Take a risk with your health and your comfort. Take a risk with it because he's worth the risk. And when the old self says, I don't want to lose those things. I want to hold on to those things. I don't think the gospel is worth the loss of my health, of my wealth, of my house, of my job. I don't think that person I'm sharing the gospel with is worth the risk. You look to the worth of Jesus in that moment who died for you and gave everything for you. 
You look to him and then you repent and you deny that person. You put that person on the cross and you share the gospel anyways. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. Why? Because you have true life. You can forsake the old one. You have it. It's yours. It's purchased for you with his blood. You have it. Jesus said in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Then you have life. Life eternal. Who in the world, who in the world would hold on, would let go of a billion dollars for the sake of a dollar? Who would do that? But we do it all the time. We forget that we have real, rock-solid, eternal life, and yet we want to hold on to this fake life. Look at the next half of verse 24. Look at the next half of 24. He says, but whoever loses his life, whoever loses his life for my sake, will save it. Jesus is not asking you to just lose your life for nothing. People, unbelievers all over the world give their life away to missions and callings that they have, and it's not for Jesus, it's for themselves, and they still lose their life. They still lose it. Mark 8.35 puts it this way. It's a parallel text. He says, for my sake and the gospels. That's the idea. That's the idea. Jesus is not calling us to lose our life for no reason. He's not calling us to lose our life for no reason. Jesus is not calling us to pursue suffering. Suffering is not the objective. Don't leave here today saying, Jesus said, sell everything, move into the jungle just to do it. I'm supposed to just sell all my stuff and get rid of all my things and that, as if that would earn me eternal life. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. We do not pursue suffering. We are not called to just lose this earthly life and all that it offers for nothing. We are called not to pursue suffering, but to pursue our Savior and his mission. We are called to pursue Jesus and his mission, even at great cost to us. Even at great cost to us. We pursue him and his mission, even if people hate you for it. And they will. They will. Even if people shame you for it, they will. They will shame you. What? You want to have another kid? Are you crazy? Don't you have enough? That's shame. What? You want to adopt? You already have enough. Are you crazy? That's silly. What? You want to, you want to foster? Are you nuts? Don't you know how hard that is? That'll ruin your life. Shame. What? You want to quit your job because you because of too much travel? What? You want to say no to a raise because of time commitments to your family and your church? That's stupid, man. Why would you do that? What? You believe Jesus is the only way? So you think I'm going to hell? What? You say homosexuality is wrong? Premarital sex is wrong? You're such a bigot. Shame. It's coming. If you stand for what's right, 
If you stand for Christ, if you stand for his mission, if you stand for him, that is coming. And so on, and so on, and so on. And even if people harm you for it, even if people threaten you for it, even if people disown you, if family disowns you for it, even if people kill you for it, Jesus says, you pursue me. You pursue me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We make our whole life about him and his mission, and the reward is life with him. Now, life now, and forever. Eternity. It's not a life you earned. You don't earn it. He earned it. He earned it on the cross. He paid for you that life with his blood. Again, I am, I am not talking about a works righteousness. We are not talking about earning eternal life by taking risks. We're not talking about earning eternal life by self-denial. No, we're talking about a mind I'm talking about a mind and a heart that understands and feels the weight of their forgiveness. You hear me? It's the weight of your forgiveness. And now, because of the weight of your forgiveness, you so trust Jesus. You so trust Jesus that we now have a new view of the world. His view, not ours. We have a new view of the world and what life really is about. What it's really about and that only comes through a work of the Holy Spirit. Only comes through a work of the Holy Spirit. There's no way a dead heart can ever hate his own life. It has to be renewed. You have to be given new eyes to see. But it's with new eyes and with new ears that we see Christ and we hear his promises of eternal life and we follow. We follow him. It's with a heart that's so in love with Jesus that when he bids us to come and lose your life, you say, no brainer. I'm coming with you. Where are you going? I'm in. I want you, Jesus. I want you. We follow him right through every bit of suffering. Every bit of suffering along the way because now, now we count our life as old, the old life is nothing. We count our old life as nothing and Jesus and his gospel as everything. Does that describe your heart? Personalize it. Internalize this for just a minute. Does that describe your heart? Of course, no one in this life has done this perfectly. It is a progression. But the question is, are you progressing? Is God continuing to work in you in such a way that you are going further and further away from the old pursuits of the old self, of the pursuits of the world, and into greater and greater pursuit of him and the Great Commission? Are you seeing that trajectory in your life? Take a survey. Take a survey of your life. If your life was a movie, when people saw it, would they, would they talk after the movie about your love for Jesus and his gospel? Or would they say, man, that person really loved themselves? Does your movie of your life look like the pursuit of acceptance, glory, comfort, and safety? Or does it look risky for Jesus and for the gospel? These are tough questions, I know. I've been asking them all week. Verse 25, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
So now Jesus says it another way. He says it again. But Jesus is now talking about profit and gain. This is like transactional talk. This is transactional type language. And so sub point two is your soul, your soul is more valuable than the world. Your soul is more valuable than the world. So Jesus is asking a question. It's a rhetorical question. But the question is, is what does it profit you? What does it profit you to gain the world and lose eternal life? What's the profit? Do the math. In the world of business, you buy low and sell high in order to make a profit. No one would ever buy something for $100 and sell it for a dollar. Right? That would be taking a massive loss. And he's basically asking this. Like, even if you could, even if you could get every single person in the world to just love you, if you get everybody in the world to just love you, you could be the richest person, you could be the most comfortable person, you could be the safest person in the whole world, all the security, all the wealth, all the comfort. Is it anywhere near the value of eternity to you? Is it anywhere near the value of eternity with him? That's the option we are left with. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you pursue the world, love the world, love self, love money, love comfort, love praise, then you're basically exchanging that for eternal life. And when you do that, you lose. You lose big. You will lose and lose really big. We will see this example in Luke 12 later, maybe in a few months. But later in this book, in chapter 12, Jesus gives a parable of a man who was very, very wealthy. He stored up a lot for himself, and he made his barns full with all kinds of treasure and riches. And he said to his soul, he said, soul, take your ease, for my barns are full. Do you know what Jesus called him? He said, you're a fool. You're a fool. For tonight your soul is required of you, and whose will your things be? This man pursued the world, and he got nothing in the end except God's wrath forever. We get 80 or so short years, if that. Our life is but a vapor, a few breaths, and then eternity forever. What is 80 years? Even if you lived the longest life possible, what's 100 years in the realm of eternity? That should be on our mind every day. What is 100 years in the realm of eternity? It's nothing. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's gone in a minute. We're like grass that grows up and fades in a minute. And then we're in eternity forever. I pray that God would help us to see This is my prayer for me and my family and our church family is that we would see the reality, that we would see the reality of this earthly life and what it is actually for. What it's actually for. You want to know, you want to know why so many people are feeling empty inside? So many people, even in the church, they're empty. They're empty inside. They're feeling discontent. They're longing for more and more and more. It's because they're grieved. They're grieved. They long to be satisfied in a world that just won't cut it. It won't satisfy ever. 
Think about it. If you've been made for a particular purpose, which was to glorify God, if you're to live for the glory of God, that was your purpose, and you live life contrary to that purpose, don't be surprised when you're discontent. You're not living according to your calling. You're living according to why you were made. Don't be surprised when you're sad and grieving and depressed when you're not living according to the mission he gave you. We were made for a purpose. You want to be fulfilled? You want real joy, Jesus says? He says, forsake the world. Forsake the world. Deny and kill the old man and live for him. For his name's sake. For his gospel. For his mission and his glory. To take the world over eternity is a very dark exchange. It's a very dark exchange. And Jesus is saying here in Luke 9 that to live for comfort and ease and all the pleasures of the world rather than living for him is spiritually bankrupt. It's spiritually bankrupt. The question is, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Do we preach this to ourselves every morning, every day? Or do we tend to believe that Jesus is something we can just add to our life? I think we tend to believe that we can have both. I think we tend to believe that we can have both Jesus and the world. But what is this verse saying? You can't. You can't. You want life? Lose the world. You want the world? You lose life. It's that simple. It's not complex. It's just hard. It's hard for us to believe it and live it out. But Jesus gives us a promise in this rhetorical question. The promise is forsake the world and you save yourself. Your eternity with him is your reward. Your eternity with Jesus is your reward. And Jesus in verse 26, he carries it a step further. He says, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Now, if it seems like I'm repeating myself a lot in this sermon, it's not my fault. Jesus is doing it. It's the text. All right? Jesus says stuff like this all the time. I was shocked at just studying and looking at all the cross-references. How often Jesus is saying, forsake your life. Hate your life. He says it all the time. He never stops saying hard things like that. Like, hate the world. Anyone who loves the world is an enemy of mine. It's continuous throughout all of Scripture. And he's repeating himself, so he must be saying it over and over again for a reason. So we should listen close. Don't be distracted by the repetition. He's, saying, he's repeating himself on purpose. And he's saying it in a different way. And this way he's saying, sub-point three is deny yourself. Deny yourself or be denied at judgment. Deny yourself or be denied at judgment. To follow Jesus, to follow Jesus or to be his disciple is to magnify the worth of Christ and his word. Is to magnify, to put on display the value and worth of Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel. That's what it means. That's, that's what it means to follow him. And that's why suffering comes because people hate that message. The opposite of it would be to live ashamed of Christ and his word. That's what the opposite of that would be. Another way to put it is to save yourself from being shamed by the world. 
So to be ashamed of Christ is to save yourself from the shame of the world. Again, Jesus said if they hate him, they will hate you also. So of course, to say things about him truthfully is going to cause people to hate you too. He says, identify with me. Jesus says, love me, love my words, and you are committing to a love of that which the world hates. You ready for that? Are you ready to commit to something that the world hates? This takes it again to the level of how we live. We can't just follow Jesus in our heads. We can't just follow Jesus in our, in our heads. No, we, we've said this before, but Christianity, Christianity is not a private, keep-it-to-yourself religion. It's not how this works. Those who have been affected by the gospel, when you have been really rootedly affected by the gospel, those who have been changed by the Spirit, those who have denied themselves, those who have forsaken this world, they will proclaim Christ. They just will. You won't be able to help it. And when you don't, it's because you forget. You forget why you were made. You forget why you were reborn. You forget why you exist. Look at Luke 12 again with me, this time in verses 8 and 9. He says the same, it's a parallel verse, says it in a different, it's not a parallel, but later in Luke, he says it again, he repeats himself. He says, verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels, before the angels of God. So here Jesus, he says it again, but he says it in the positive first, right? He says, everyone who confesses me before others. So instead of ashamed, you're confessing. Whoever confesses me before others, the Son of Man will confess you. Okay? This means, this word confess, it it means to speak. The word is lego, which is to speak or tell of. So the opposite of speak or confess means It's given in verse 9 of Luke 12, which is to deny, is to deny Christ. So the opposite of to confess is to deny him. This is the very same word that Luke uses in chapter 9, verse 23, that Jesus tells us to speak, do it to ourselves. The very thing we are called by Christ to do to ourselves when we do not confess him, we do to him instead of us. You get that? The very thing that Jesus says to do to ourselves, we do to the king of kings when we do not confess him to the world. So therefore, to confess Christ is to deny self. To confess Christ is to deny self. Now, of course, of course, no one likes to be shamed. It's not comfortable. No one likes to feel scorn or shame or rejection of others. But in this text here, Jesus wants us to kind of weigh it out, okay? Put, put it on the scale. Rejection by man now or rejection by God later? Which is it going to be? Fear man or fear God? Be rejected by man or rejected by God? Which is it? What will you choose? Jesus gives us an answer. He tells us what to do. Later, he says, do not fear man who can kill the body, 
Do not fear man who can kill the body and then after that have no more they can do. He says, I will tell you who to fear. I will tell you who to fear. Fear the one who has killed the body, who has the authority to also cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's your answer. Who will you choose? Who will you fear? To be ashamed of Christ is to deny Christ to others or to not speak of him or to refuse to speak of him for fear of others, which is to save yourself. That's what it looks like to save yourself and lose. Lose big in the end. And the end is exactly what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to a very distant end in mind and the judgment and the final judgment when he would return. I want to just read a few verses for you. They're on the back of your handout. I want us to hear, when you listen to these verses, I want you to hear the majesty of Christ. I want you to listen and hear the majesty of who he is, the kingly, authoritative person of Christ. Listen to this, Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth, when they look upon him, they will mourn, they will weep at looking at him. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's power. That's rule. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. Like a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus is saying that all will stand before him one day as the Son of Man. The one who humbled himself and took on flesh for our sake. The one who became low so that we could become rich. The one who first denied himself. The one who first took up his cross and humbled himself. He's coming back, but not humble anymore. He will not be lowly anymore, but he is going to be returning in power. He's going to be returning in glory and authority and honor and might and with a rod of iron by which he will judge the nations. That's how he's coming back. Praise God. Praise God that he's coming back and he's going to come with such authority and power. And what he is saying here is that the king, the king is coming back The king is coming back and he will cast all who denied themselves, all who do not deny themselves, who live for the world, all who deny him for fear of man, he will cast them out of his coming kingdom forever. You do not serve him as king now, you will not have him as king forever. That's what he's saying. But whoever worships the king and fears the king, they will be saved in that day. In fact, he will confess you. He will lift you up. You will be with him forever. John MacArthur puts it this way, very blunt, as you may expect. It says, everybody is going to stand before the throne of judgment at the final tribunal and be judged eternally on how they responded to this message. Let me summarize it simply. Self-love will send you to hell. Self-hate will send you to heaven. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is essential. 
Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ tied to genuine repentance is required. Both are a mighty works of the Spirit. Both are a mighty work of the Spirit of God and in a willing heart through the truth understood. That's why we preach the truth. End quote. This is what Jesus is describing. Genuine faith and repentance. Genuine faith and repentance, which is denying self, denying this world, and confessing Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what life is all about. This is our life verse. This is our life verse. This is what should be taped under the mirror of your bathroom so that you see it every morning and meditate every morning that anyone should come after me today. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily today. Follow Christ. All of life is repentance. All of life is growing in faith in the pursuit of his kingdom. Amen? Jesus gives one final encouragement. He gives one final encouragement. He says, verse 27, but I, but truthfully I, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So point four, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this one verse had a lot of biblical scholars in a tailspin. Okay, I, I looked through commentary after commentary. Uh, we had discussions with the preach team on this, and commentary, they're all over the place. None of them agree. All right, this, this, many trees have died over this one verse. Okay, many libraries have been filled. But as I understand it, the verse is meant to be, once again, another encouragement. Yet another encouragement to push through and forsake the world and deny yourself and to live for him. Meaning, Jesus is giving them a reason after reason after reason, right? To receive this message, believe this truth, deny yourself and carry your cross, right? Because you want to live. Because you don't want to forfeit yourself. Because you don't want to be denied at judgment. And now, because the kingdom of God is in your midst, The kingdom of God is in your midst. In these past few verses, even the ones that Brian taught on a few weeks ago, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer. I am going to die. I'm going to rise again, and you are to follow me. You're to follow me. And in verse 26, he says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back as a judge. Now, Jesus knows this would have been hard for his disciples to understand or swallow because they would be thinking, what do you mean come back? Like the idea of a second coming was very foreign to them. It's, it's something to us on this side of the cross, but to them there's no second coming. There is one coming, one king, and he's coming to set up his kingdom. So for Jesus to say, I'm going to die and then come back, how, what does that mean, come back? And how can we know it's true? You just said you're going to die. How do we know you're actually gonna, what you said is true is actually going to happen? Well, in this verse, he's assuring them, he's assuring them that some of them will see a glimpse of this kingdom to come. He's assuring that some will see this kingdom to come. I will come back, he says, and I will come as a judge. I will come as the son of man that you know me as, as Daniel 7, as a ruling king. The judge of 26 will be revealed in about a week or so. In about a week or so, the transfiguration in the coming verses will be a taste for, the, for some, for namely three, will be a taste of the kingdom 
In verse 27, I believe this is a short-term prophecy. Jesus is giving them a short-term prophecy, like a week ahead of time, of something that's going to take place to give them all they need to fight that fight of faith and believe that he is who he says he is and that he is coming back in this very same power and glory. What he's doing is he's validating his claim and encouraging them. He's encouraging them in their calling to deny themselves and take up their cross and to follow him. He's saying to them, yes, yes, you have seen the power of the kingdom so far, haven't you? You've seen the power of the kingdom in the healings. You've seen the power of the kingdom in resurrections. You've seen it in the calming of the sea, exercising demons, and you've even seen this power worked out in you. You've, you've performed many, many miracles yourself. Who do you think gave you that power? The king. And so you've seen the power of the kingdom working in the world, and yes, I am the king. Yes, I am going to die, but soon, not later, Soon, I am going to show some of you, some of you, that I have the power and the authority to lay down my life and take it up again and judge the nations. You will see it. I'm going to show you who the Son of Man of Daniel 7 is. You're going to see him with your own eyes. Some of you will see my glory and my power in the transfiguration to come. And in seeing this, you will know that the King of Kings is here. The king of kings is here, and he's in power, and he's in authority, and no one can take that from me, even if I'm on the cross. You believe that. No one can take that from me. So fear not. I will not be dethroned. Fear not. Your life committed to me will not be wasted. That's the point. That's the point. Neither will yours. Just as Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. My life will not be a waste. But with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's his only aim, is that Christ be honored. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so for us today, for us today, we have the scriptures. We have the eyewitness accounts. And we also see the power the power of the kingdom in the changed lives of the people of the church, don't we? Don't we see this? We see the church growing. We see kingdom citizenships growing each and every day. And if you think that that happens without kingdom power, and what I mean by that is like, like authoritative king-like power from heaven down to us that calls the dead to rise and they rise. If you don't see that as something amazing, then you don't understand how fantastic it is to be saved. How miraculous it is to have a heart that's dead be regenerated to life. It is only by the power of a king who is in charge of all things can do something like that. He's ruling. He is the one. He's on his throne. He's ruling and he's calling people out of a domain of darkness and into his kingdom. And when he calls, they come And he summons us to be a part of that. He summons us to be a part of that. To call people to treasure him, to love him, and be in his kingdom, because he is the treasure. He is the reward. So don't lose hope, church. Don't lose hope in your suffering. Don't lose hope in your trials. Don't lose hope when you're doing it for his name's sake. 
for you will soon see that he has the power to make all things new. So now what? Now what? The only way to live out this calling is yet again by the work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do what we need, namely give us eyes to see the worth and value of Christ. And he does that. He does that through his word, yes, but he also does that through his church. I want to close today by giving us this last thought here that the Spirit is at work in this body. The Spirit is at work in this body. Romans 8 tells us that it is by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. It is by the Spirit. So cross-carrying and flesh-killing is by the Spirit who shows us Christ and points us to His worth in His Word, but yes, through one another as well. Through one another as well. He points us to Him through one another who has the Spirit in each of you. Doesn't He? If the Spirit lives in you, then He uses you to point my eyes to Him and vice versa. Without one another, self-denial, cross-carrying will be very, very hard, borderline impossible. Without one another, God has given each of us this church body, again, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Think about that. Every person in this room who is in Christ is indwelt with the Spirit of God. And He's given us each other to fellowship with, to share our struggles with, And by the work of the Spirit in us, point one another to Christ and to his worth. It's not a solo mission. It's not a solo mission. This is a mission of the whole body. It is the mission of this particular body. Hear me on this. I'm almost done. This is so important. To evangelize, equip, establish, and expand. And none of this can be done unless each of us, like, like every one of us, sees Christ as absolutely worth living for and dying for. Every one of us. And then, coming together, we come together and we remind each other of his worth. We remind each other of his value so that it's easy to give up the world for him. This is essential. This is essential in the body of Christ. So let's be the body of Christ Let's be the body of Christ in the world for one another. Let's be a body that denies ourselves and puts the mission of Christ first together. Let's do it together. You can go into the world and get beat up, come back, and be encouraged and wounds healed by people who went out and did the same. That's what this is about. God has given us all the means of grace to fight the fight of faith, namely in one another. So I have three major encouragements. They're very short. Number one, avail yourself to the means of grace. Meaning his word, prayer, and your local church. Get plugged in. Number two, be the kind of family member that points your brother and sister to Christ continuously. Remind them what their life is about. Remind them it's not about this world. Remind them it's not about the glory and self-glory, but it's about Christ. Be the kind of family member that will tell me that when you know I need to hear it. I'll do the same. Number three, that means that you have to be the kind of family member that really knows and makes an effort to know your church body. Don't be a solo Christian. Don't hide in the corners. 
Get involved. Get plugged in. Meet one another. Make a phone call. Make a phone call. Get lunch. Have a play date. Get dinner. Invite someone over. Get out of your bubble and reach out. It doesn't matter who reaches out first. Be first. And be first every time if you have to. It's that important. Get to, know, get to knowing and being known by one another. It's the only way we can be the kind of church that is truly sharing our struggles and pointing one another to Christ is if you are seeking to know and be known so that Christ may be known through this body. It's the only way. Jesus' mission is to reach the world, not through you, but through us, through this church. Let's pray that he would do that. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word and for this body. We thank you, Lord, for the means of grace you have given us to live out this calling. You have not left us alone. You have given us your spirit. You have given us your word. You have given us rock-solid promises. And you've given us your church. Don't let us be so foolish, God, that we would not avail ourselves to all the means of grace that you have given us in order to live out our calling, forsake the world, and live life to the fullest here by serving you. You are worth every bit of loss that you may call us to. You're worth every insult. You are worth every firing. You are worth every disowning. You are worth it all. And I know, God, that if every person in this room believed that and lived that, that if I went out and I got disowned or I got fired, I could come back and they would understand. They would understand. I would have a a community of people living for you in such a way that we could just be that for one another, encouraging one another to keep running, keep fighting, Keep believing, keep trusting, you're worth it, you're worth it. I ask this, God, and according to your will, that you would do this in this body. You continue to do it in this body. You are doing it. Continue, God. In Jesus' name, amen.